Good morning, City Light. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Mo, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And man, today is a very special day for uh, our church in the kingdom. Um, Back in June, we sent some 100 City Light family members out south uh, to join together to reach uh, South Lincoln families, but then also the people around 52nd and Old Cheney. And so today is the official launch of our South location. Can I get an amen, a praise Jesus, hallelujah, right? Like, that's a big deal. Like, it's a, it's a huge day for our church. See, we started our first core team some two, a little over two years ago right here in this room. And since then, what we've seen is over 1,100 people call City Light Lincoln their home church, their home family. 130 people have been baptized. We have been gifted two facilities now. And there's been an older church who's saying, man, I want to reach the next generation. I want to see the next generation of people be reached for Jesus and spend this part of my life investing in that to the point where they said, hey, we want to join what you're doing. And so Old Cheney Alliance Church closed last weekend, and they're joining us this weekend at our South location as we launch. This is just, I just want to point this out to you guys. This is not normal. Like, this is not normal, and we can only like look to Jesus and his grace and his blessing over us to actually see that this is just beautiful, guys. So I'm I'm praising Jesus for what he's been doing in our church. It's not normal. It's amazing. And so, man, as you go out, if you think about our family out south, please be praying for them, but also just be praising Jesus for their faithfulness. Like they left what they were called to here to go see us multiply disciples in another part of our city. And so it's it's a beautiful thing that we're going to get to celebrate and and just praise Jesus for. Now, we're going to actually keep going through the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you have Bible. I hope you do. Uh, Open up to chapter 5. And man, as we've been walking through Hebrews, it's been a hard book. It's been challenging for us. And we've seen Jesus really show up in some really sweet ways. And so that's no different today as we look at that text. So while you're making your way there, I want to talk to you about the high call of sacrificial leadership in our country. I want to talk to you about one leader in particular, Abraham Lincoln. Not the one you thought, right? Uh, we appointed uh, Abraham Lincoln as our 16th president, right? Like, he, he's, he's said to be one of the top five favorite presidents of all time. Uh, he, ha- he hated slavery and spent much of his political career trying to stop the spread of slavery into the unsettled territories. He tr- he, and by doing so, there was actually a war that came about. So by trying to stop slavery in our country, it led to the United States' first and only civil war. And the war began actually shortly after after his inauguration as president. Later, he gave an executive order called the Emancipation Proclamation, which ended slavery, saying that you're no longer property, but you're now free, which means, man, he made the decision to free 3.5 million people, and this, this, this actually cost him something. It cost him ultimately his life. He gave the ultimate sacrifice in his leadership for that cause. Now, while all of these things are great and we celebrate that, right, they're, they're very good things, we also know that Abraham Lincoln's flawed. Like, he, he, it, he is said to have fought a pretty dirty fight when it came to his election. In, in fact, after almost 250 years of slavery, he actually contemplated sin, sending slaves back to Africa. Okay, like, so I'm, I'm not sure how that works, how you send someone back to a home that they never knew to begin with, but he contemplated doing that. Even in the Emancipation Proclamation, he did not make the slaves citizens. So, so he didn't see them as equals to whites. In fact, he's quoted as saying, they are kind of an alien group who have been uprooted from their own society and unjustly brought across the ocean, send them back to Africa. 
And another time he says, I am not nor ever have I been in favor of bringing about in any way the social or political equality of the white and black races. So though he did not see slavery as just, he also did not see blacks as equal. He did not see them as fully being human. And so I'm saying all of this not to belittle or delegitimize his impact on our country at all. But I wanting to do is show you guys that we as a people are looking to men and women to represent us, to be leaders. And, and, and However, in the midst of all that, none of them have been perfect, and, and, and all of them have been flawed. And because of that, because when we appoint these leaders, they end up, they end up having an end to their leadership, don't they? Like they die, they move on. And so in the same way, the author of the book of Hebrews is now started out kind of the end of chapter four, end of chapter five is showing this very reality. And so God's chosen people, Israel, they've had leadership over them for a long time, and it's called a high priest who looks over the people, Israel. And, and so while they were great high priests that they've had, they've had very great high priests in their past, they were still imperfect and they eventually died. See, this is the problem that Hebrews 5 actually presents, that there had, to, had never been a perfect high priest for, his, for God's people. And it's saying, hey, but there's good news. Hebrews chapter 5 gives us that Jesus is that perfect high priest. Before we look at that, though, he's the goat, right? He's the greatest of all time. Before we look at him, I want us to look at what does it mean to be a high priest? What are the qualifications to be a leader over God's people? And so let's pick it up in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was." And so the first thing we're going to observe is the call of a high priest, the call of a high priest. So Hebrews has, has dedicated itself thus far to say, man, Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than death and so on. And then in chapter four, the argument switches to the high priest. It, it switches to the role of the high priest because the author acknowledges that he knew that the Hebrews would have taken that role as the most serious role in all of the land. In all of their community, the role of the high priest was it. It stopped there. And so he's like, I got to address this. And he said he had to address it so much so that he devotes chapter 5 through 10 on the importance of seeing Jesus as the great high priest, the goat of all high priests. So that he's not messing around with this. Like it's a very serious thing for him to, uh, to, to mess with. And so that's why he's transitioned in chapter 5 to talk about this. So, so while we're looking at that, let's say, okay, so what does it look like to be a high priest? What do they do? And, and so to simply put it, they communicated man's message to God and then God's message to man. You see that? Uh, the high priest represented their people. They made sacrifices and offerings for their people. They were the mediator for their people. So just kind of picture it this way. You know, the, when you were a dude and you like wanted to go talk to that girl, but then you sent your friend to go talk to that girl for you because you needed a mediator between you and that girl for some reason. Like that's kind of what the high priest did. Okay. Like that, that's the kind of the picture of the high priest. He went to God for them and then he came back and told him what he said. But there's three primary qualifications that we see in our text for a high priest. And so the first one we see in verse one is that the high priest needed to be human. 
They need to be human. To represent God's people, you had to be a people. To sacrifice for God's people, you had to be a representative of them. Representation is huge for humanity. We all need representation, okay? I grew up watching uh, cartoons a lot, but the main cartoons that I really, like, it was, like, driven in my head that I needed to see are the super, superhero ones, right? So, like, X-Men, any of y'all remember that? No, most of you don't. But that's okay. X-Men had a cartoon uh, in the 90s that, that we watched with just wonderful superheroes. Every time I got home from school, I was watching that thing. Saturday morning cartoons, I was watching that thing. And even now, I still watch it. It's on Hulu. My kids and I watch that cartoon still now today. But it, I just had this fascination with superheroes. I, I saw them because I'm like, man, they shown what, what, is, what could be, right? They shown, like... The, the impossible capacity of human beings. But I do remember wondering why none of the superheroes look like me, right? Like Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, while amazing heroes, but none of them had brown skin. And so I was visiting my uncle one year. I think I was about 15 years old, and he was real like, excited about this movie. He, he wanted to take me to this movie. He's like, we got to go see this movie, and it was called Spawn. How many of you know Spawn? Just a few nerds. Great. Uh, anyway, I'm one too. It's okay. It's fine. It wasn't a derogatory term. Anyway, so Spawn came out, and here's why my uncle was excited. There's this black man who uh, gets killed because he, he got betrayed by his partner. He gets burned alive. He goes down to the pits of hell, and then this demonic creature comes to him and says, hey, you can go see your wife and kid again if you give me your soul. And of course, that's what, how demons work, right? So he goes, he gives his soul away, and then he comes back. The only catch to that is he's got a pizza face and, and like has this really cool suit. So like that's, that's kind of Spawn's story. But to make a long story short, my uncle got excited about this movie because for the first time he had saw a major motion picture with a black man as the superhero, right? And at the time, I didn't really get it because, like I said, he was running around this movie with a pizza face. It didn't make sense to me. But, but now as a man, though, I get it. I truly understand it now because there's negative, resp- uh, negative representations of black men all over the media and television. And the very, very little amount of portrayals of positive images, See, I, I also understand it because it can plant in your mind a cap, right? That if all I see is negative images, that means I can't see beyond that. There's not a lot of hope beyond this place if all you get is negative images. And so this year was a huge year for me and a lot of people like myself. The movie Black Panther came out, right? Like Wakanda Forever? Anybody with me on that one? Okay, yes. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Okay, so like it was a good movie, right? It was a good movie. But the reason why it was important, though, is that he had a restorative representation for black people. Like it was the first major Marvel movie put out. By the way, it sold most, more than most all of the other Marvel movies. But it was the first one with not only a black lead character as the superhero, but the rest of the entire cast other than two people were also black. Positive, restorative representation. And he didn't have to have a piece of face to do it, right? That's what the high priest for the Jews is, okay? He is restorative representation for the Jews. But he couldn't do that if, if he wasn't like them. If he wasn't a human, if he wasn't Jew, then he wouldn't actually bear the image of the people in order to actually be representative of them. He shared their humanity. He connected with God, but then he also was linked up with his people. As much as I, I love Batman, he can't rightly represent me. Right? Like he, he, he might be able to represent humanity by and large, and he might be able to even represent wealthy people leveraging their finances for something good, but he didn't come from my same background. He doesn't have brown skin, so he could not fully, properly represent me. And, and that's why Black Panther matters. 
That's why it's so important because he was a superhero that could redemptively represent black people. That's why it mattered. And a called high priest is the same thing. He was not a man who was detached from his people, but intimately invested and involved in those people. Like, there's no, the, the, the high priest was someone who was selected by God among men, among people. And so it wasn't this thing where he only came out to do his religious duties and went back into a hole. No, he was among those people. He understood his people. He represented them well because of who he was and, and because he's human. He was a Jew and he related to them. And that gets me to verse 2, actually. Verse 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since... He himself is beset with weakness. So the second qualification for the call of a high priest is compassion. See, the high priest must be able to feel, experience what his people are experiencing and feeling. He had to be sympathetic. You see, the word compassion means to bear gently with with because you feel it too. See, a person who is not compassionate could not care less about anybody else's problems or, or things going on in their life. They, they aren't moved to act or feel what others are feeling because they don't, they don't understand it. They don't relate to it. But by God's grace, the high priest who comes to lead his people must be able to bear the burdens and faults of others because he knows he's got the same kind of problems too. So the high priest knew his own weaknesses as well as he knew the weaknesses of his, of his people. He, in fact, had to make a, make a sacrifice for each one of them because he knew he also sinned. He, had his, he needed his sin to be paid for. You see, he wasn't a perfect man. He was just a man called out by God. They had not only made sacrifices for their own sin, but the sins of their people over and over and over again. See, the priests were deeply invested in their people, so much so that they were called shepherds. If you read the Old Testament about the priests, they were called shepherds, which means if you're a shepherd of sheep, you get down and get dirty, and you start to smell like them when you get home, right? Like, like that's what a shepherd is, and so they must be experiencing the life of their people. They need to know their people's highest highs and their lowest lows to be an effective leader, the Greek word for, for deal gently with, that, what that says, it's actually, it's a hard word to translate because the English language wants to put one or two words on something to translate it, when really, it's an entire phrase. It means to bear gently because you feel it like they feel it. It means to bear gently because you feel it like they feel it. See, the, the high priest must have a deep compassion for the people. Just a side note for us, in 1 Peter 2.9, guess what he calls us, followers of Jesus Christ, a royal high priest. He calls us royal high priest. So that means, no, we're not the high priest, but we are a royal priesthood. We are little priests in the world, which means that we, the same kind of compassion that our high priest has, guess what? That's our call too. We are called to a great and holy compassion for people. This is our call. In fact, the primary method by which God shows his compassion to others is, guess what? Through his bride, through his body, through his church. So, so when God wants to, 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 to provide for somebody in their primary needs, whether that be clothing or food, guess who he uses? Primarily his people. And when God wants to grow somebody and mature somebody in life, guess who he uses? Primarily his people, the church. When God wants to encourage somebody, guess what? He uses his church. When God wants to tell someone about his beautiful, amazing son, he primarily uses his church. God uses his church to show the world his great and beautiful compassion. And City Light, that means you, by the way. So that means your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, your friend, your family. God primarily wants to use you 
to show them his compassion. He wants to use you. Now, the final qualification for a priest, according to verse 4, is that he's actually called by God. God calls him out. So, so, the, so to be a high priest, it's not a job that you actually just go up and grab, okay? It's, it's not democratically voted for. It's not applied for. It's not a help-wanted ad. No, God sovereignly and divinely has to call you to be a high priest. So that's what that, it was an exclusive office that God called men into. Now, for the Jews, there was a little bit of a prerequisite for God to call you into it. You needed to be from the tribe of Levi and also an offspring of Aaron, so to speak. So like a part of Aaron's family, which is Moses' brother. But what comfort could we take in that, though, as, as God's people, that he would choose leadership that he called into place? It wasn't something that they voted on as a, as a people group, but he made sure that that person could relate to them, was humble, was compassionate, and ultimately was chosen by God himself. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Mo, glad you talked to me about the high priest for the Jews over 2,000 years ago, but so what? Like, why does that matter right here, right now for me? And so, so I, you might not see it yet. So remember when I referred to Abraham Lincoln and superheroes? You see, we're constantly looking for leadership, right? We're constantly looking out there for leadership, whether that be someone that we closely relate to or someone who's out, far out there or even ourselves. We're looking for some sort of leadership, and the only problem is that we're flawed and they're flawed too, and we're always going to have an end to ourselves. We can't be the ultimate leader. So, man, wouldn't you want a leader that's perfect, that meets all the standards that set before perfectly? Like, I, I sure hope that that's the kind of leader that we're looking for, So now that we've seen what it takes to be a high priest, let's look at the goat, the greatest high priest of all time. Let's pick it up in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the second observation that we're looking at is the highest priest, with an eternal calling, the highest priest with an eternal calling. So remember the author, he's wanting to, to show us that Jesus is the greatest high priest. So he's pinning them against, he's comparing, saying, hey, I know you've had high priests and they were, they were good dudes, but I have a, the greatest high priest of all time, the GOAT. And so what he's doing at this point, he's going he's gonna to shift it a little bit and say, okay, let me show you how Jesus, in reverse order, actually has these same qualifications on himself. So, so the first qualification, remember, is that uh, the, the last qualification that we just talked about is that he must be called out by God. He can't take the role himself. And so in John eight fifty four, Jesus says this. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is, it is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. You see, Jesus is saying, I didn't seek this role. Like, I didn't seek to glorify myself. I didn't seek the position. It was given to me by my heavenly Father. You see, he didn't seek glory on his own. God invested his only begotten son, Jesus, to carry the role of high priest. Jesus was given the right and authority to lead his own people, not because he took it, but because he was given it. In fact, he was given it prior to his birth. If you look at those verses of, at the end of 5 and 6, it's actually a quotation from the Psalms. 
Psalm 2.7 says, you are my son. And Psalm 110.4 says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus' role as high priest was prophesied way before his time here on earth. Way before. And this would, this would have came as a shocker to these people, though, by the way. In the same way, I remember when it first clicked to me that the Old Testament actually talked about Jesus. Like, you don't see his name present in there, but it talks about him. It talks a lot about him. In fact, it, it, it shocked me even more when it said that the entire Old Testament, the whole point of it is to point to Jesus himself, the whole thing. And so for these people, they're like, wait a minute, you're telling me that the fulfillment of everything I believe and known about my faith is finding its yes and amen in Jesus. It's finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And, and so, so here's the thing. I know I just mentioned a dude named Melchizedek, right? Like we said it a bunch of times now at this point because we read the scripture and you're like, why would you give someone that name? Like, there's so many other names that start with M, right? Like there's Malcolm, there's Melvin, there's Mark, there's Michael, there's Mike, Mikey. Like there's so many easier names, but that's what his mama gave him. So blame her, get mad at her from a long time ago. Anyway, Melchizedek is a very important figure in the Old Testament. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about Melchizedek in some, in some upcoming chapters, but I want to basically just outline why is he mentioned in this particular text. So this Hebrew church, they would have been able to trace the line of the Levite tribe and Aaron all the way back for every high priest they ever had. So then when you mention Jesus, who is not a Levite, not of the line of Aaron, then they're like, ha, got you. His mama's babies, daddy's cousins, uncles, grandpa, 750 times removed, was not Aaron. So therefore, Jesus can't be a high priest, right? Like that's what there's, they, they, would, they would have surely pointed that out, and the author would have said, no, wait a minute. Let me show you somebody. Remember Melchizedek? Remember, he was called the priest of God most high, and he was a king. You see, Melchizedek was a priest of God most high, and he predated Aaron and was not a part of that same lineage. And so this, this might have been because, well, Melchi was a king and a priest, right? Like, which was a no-no later on. Like, I know I gave a dude a nickname. You got to give folks nicknames. But now Jesus is the high priest and king is what they're pointing out. He's pointing out that that he comes from a different line, not a lineage based on human expectation or human roles, but based on the call of God, the sovereign call of God, not only as the high priest of his people, but also the the king of his people. And and look back at verse 6. It says that Jesus' priesthood is forever. It's never ending. It's ongoing for all of eternity. Every other priest died. And they stayed dead, by the way. They didn't raise from the grave. Jesus himself did die, yes, but he, he raised from the grave. He didn't stay there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, being a mediator for us to God and also being our king overall. Jesus blew that qualification out of the water. He was definitely called by God, but even to a greater extent, his sovereign hand rules and reigns forever. Now, as we pointed out, Jesus, we're trying to look at Jesus in these qualifications. And at this point, we know that he's, he's, he's sufficient in two of them. So last week, Ricky talked about uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that says that he was a sympathetic high priest, meaning that he had compassion. And that we know that the other part of it that we just saw that he's called out by God. Well, there's only one more left, right? He had to be human. It's a big one. It's a really big one. And so verses 7 through 9 outline the incarnation, that Jesus really did come and he really was human. The incarnation is is essential part of our faith. Like if God doesn't come as fully man and fully God, he cannot be our perfect representation and he cannot be our eternal savior. And so when we're looking at verses 7 through 9, it's actually referring to one specific event where Jesus displayed this. It's the events that took place in Luke 22, verses 41 through 44. Here's what it says. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You see, Jesus was fully human, and he experienced a great distress. He was distressed so much so that his sweat became blood, right? And why was he distressed? Well, he was just hours away from being spat on, beaten, and ultimately hung on a cross. And worse yet, he was innocent, he was perfect, he never sinned, he was pure, he was holy. And instead of getting what he deserves, instead he got our sin on him. He took that in exchange for his perfect righteousness. And as bad as the physical torture might have been in the betrayal of his best friends, the greatest pain that Jesus experienced was the cup of wrath of God poured out on him because of our sin and the separation that he had never experienced before with his heavenly father. You see, he did this in order to pay our debts. The debt that we couldn't pay, the punishment that we could not endure to satisfy the holy wrath of God, that's what Jesus took. When Jesus asked for this cup to be removed, which is something that we would ask as well, given the situation, it wasn't because of the physical pain. It was actually talking about the Old Testament illustration of the God's cup of wrath being poured out on folks. And Jesus being the goat says, not my will, but yours. He gave his life in obedience to the Father on our behalf. And it says here that that that's what it means that he learned obedience in verse 8. So when you talk about obedience, for Jesus to learn obedience, we can't think of it in the same way that we think of it, right? So we usually think of kids, right? They have to learn to obey because that's not their nature. Like my kids, they don't obey on command, right? Like that's not something that they, they, they have to learn how to obey when I say something because their nature is disobedient. So Jesus didn't have to suffer to learn to obey because he all of a sudden disobeyed and needed to learn how to obey. No, like he perfectly understood obedience just fine. But here's what he did. He had this great humility. I think Hebrews 2.9 says this, that he lowered himself to being lower than the angels. So, So what he's communicating is Jesus, being God, the Son of God, lowered himself to being lower than the things that he created into existence, Right? So that he might bear the temptation and display the humanity and experience our suffering to its fullest extent. Philippians 2 says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He was a human. And the humility of Jesus is not natural nor normal for us as sinful man, right? Like the the ultimate act of being like Jesus, which is the call of every Christian, by the way, is to be humble. And I'm not saying just like, oh, yeah, go ahead, bro. You can, you can cut in line. I'm saying humble to the point of considering others greater than yourself. Right? That, that, that's a harder humility that he's called us into, right? Like we all have a lens of you deserve this and you deserve this and you don't deserve that and you don't deserve that, right? But Philippians 2, 3, 4 is so clear about this. It says this about us. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, this may not be our way, but this is definitely Jesus' way, right? Like he set down all of his rights. He invested 
all of his privileges down here so on our behalf, right? For the sake of others, Jesus dropped his rights. He dropped his privileges. And so because of the gospel, that's our call too. That's our call too. Verse 9 says, and being made perfect. So listen, Jesus was already perfect, okay? So when you see that word perfect, it also means complete. And so what it's showing is that Jesus perfectly displayed his perfection. So in his obedience to the point of the cross, to the point of his own death, he perfectly showed in his humanity perfect obedience. And he said, hey, I just proved it. I died for your sins. So perfect doesn't mean that his nature changed all of a sudden. It doesn't mean that his, his personhood changed. It just means that he perfectly qualified for the position and the role of high priest and savior of, of man. And then it goes a step further, and it finally says, he became the author of eternal salvation. Now, that's beautiful, right? Like, it is beautiful that, that by Jesus' death, he made a way for us to have eternal salvation. All priests before him could not provide salvation for God's people. They could only temporarily or momentarily get forgiveness for sacrifices, but those sacrifices were ongoing after sacrifice, after sacrifice, after sacrifice, and Jesus in one act was a sufficient sacrifice for all. He satisfied the wrath of God once and for all for his people. Jesus is the originator. He's the author of eternal life. See, no one else could have wrote this story, right? Like, nobody else is writing this story. No one else could have made that possible, and nobody else could have granted eternal life to us. Notice it doesn't say good works became the author of eternal salvation, or Buddha, or Muhammad, or Moses even. Jesus is the only one that can offer eternal salvation. But the question becomes, when you see that, who gets to have this salvation? Well, look at verse 9 again at the end there. It says, to all who obey him. There you go. Obey Jesus. And some of y'all are already thinking in your head, wait a minute now. City Light, I know y'all, knew y'all was going to get here, right? Like y'all was going to bait us in by God's grace, and then all of a sudden you're going to tell me you have to work for it, right? Like that's what you thought. I know you did. Anyway, so uh, that's not what I'm getting at, obviously. The, the obedience that is referring to is actually the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5 says it this way. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So you know what it means to obey Jesus? It means to believe in Jesus, to believe in Christ crucified and resurrected from the grave on your behalf. That's the obedience of faith that God's calling us to. He doesn't expect us or anybody to just start obeying rules and regulations in order to obtain this eternal life. Remember, eternal salvation comes through Jesus alone. It's the obedience of faith. It's simply faith in Christ that we're called to in obedience. In other words, obeying rules doesn't get you to heaven. You can't obey enough traffic laws. You can't obey your parents enough. You can't obey pastors enough. The only obedience is the faith in Jesus Christ himself, believing in him. So let me put it this way. Those that stop working for salvation and trust and rest in the finished work of Jesus get to have eternal salvation. Rest in him. And the author references Melchi again in verse 10 because eternal salvation is forever. Eternal salvation forever. So you couldn't gain it by your own good works and you can't lose it by your own bad works is what it's saying there. It's on and on and on. That grace is assured to you once you've received it. Now, while all of this is true, okay, it is a free grace. Obeying Jesus by faith in him doesn't mean or sideline practical obedience, right? Having faith in Jesus doesn't mean that I can go and do whatever I want, sin as much as I want. No, no, no. Faith in Jesus means you're going to be becoming more like Jesus, and Jesus was perfect. 
He was holy. He was righteous. So different aspects of our life should continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. Believing in Jesus impacts our behavior because believing in Jesus makes us more like him. So while eternal life isn't gained by obeying rules, obeying Jesus will express itself in obedience to the scriptures, in obedience of being more like Jesus. It changes us. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I know that I haven't obeyed the first thing, faith in Christ, death, burial, resurrection. Well, can I just tell you, man, we have a really great high priest who, who came and didn't sacrifice animals, but sacrificed himself on our behalf for our sin, for yours and my sin. He sacrificed himself. It was a one and done game for him. Meaning that if you place your faith in Jesus right here, right now, it is sufficient grace, it is sufficient sacrifice for all of the sins that you did before today, no matter how bad they were. It's sufficient payment for all the sins that you committed right now, right here, what you thought or what you did on the way to church today, it's sufficient today too. And it's also a sufficient sacrifice for anything you might do tomorrow. You see, this eternal life is not gained by your works. It's not gained by you doing something. It's by placing your faith in obedience to Christ, saying, hey, yes, I know that I have offended a holy and a righteous God, and you sent your son, both human and God, to die on the cross and sacrifice for my sin. Would you, would you, would you place your faith in that, on, in that high priest and that king over your life? And, and City Light, we have a high priest who is compassionate He is humble, and he is all-loving. He is sacrificially loving us. And so our call is not only to trust in him, but to obey him and to emulate this God, this high priest. If if we're to be a kingdom of little priests, then we ought to emulate the goat, right? The greatest of all time. Like when I was a kid, I love basketball still. It hasn't changed. But when I was a kid, I tried to emulate, who do you think? The goat. Michael Jordan, for the, just in case some of you were wondering, Michael Jordan, the, be, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. So I tried to emulate him. Even though I couldn't, I couldn't amount to his excellence and how good he was, I was going to get as close as I can get there. And so in a similar fashion, as a Christ follower and as a royal priesthood, we are called to emulate our priestly king. In compassion, humility, and sacrificial love, both for one another and the world out there. So I don't know where this is hitting you this morning. I don't know at what part of your heart's being grabbed at this point, but here's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that as you pursue Christ, as you see him as your great high priest and king, that he wouldn't only be a high priest and king on a Sunday morning or when you go to city group, but for every moment of every single day, every single aspect of your heart and your life would be conformed to Jesus because he's our great high priest. He sacrificed everything. He's given us his life so he can live in and through all of his people and so our call today, as I pray, is that as the redeemed family of God, after the order of Jesus Christ, that we live like that's the reality. That we'd see that our incarnate king came and sacrificed his perfect life for our sinful one, so that we might live through his perfect life. Amen? So in a moment, we're going to acknowledge that. It's not a religious ritual, by the way. We take communion every two weeks, uh, every two Sundays, and it's not just something that we just go through, Okay? Like, this is something that, like, we are acknowledging and stepping into the presence of God, so to speak, to take the bread, which is Christ's body broken, dipping it in the juice, which is his blood shed for us, not to just go through the motions, but to see this as a symbol and a sign to say, yes, he is my high priest who sacrificed for me, but he's also the king of every single aspect of my life. And so as you come, don't come perfunctory, just complacently, but come acknowledging and knowing, not only in your mind, but in your heart, 
that that is a true reality. The incarnate God of the universe is both my high priest and my king. Amen? Let's pray.